Angus at Work, a podcast for the profit-minded cattlemen. Brought to you by the Angus Beef Bulletin, we have news and information on health, nutrition, marketing, genetics, and management. So let's get to work, shall we? Hello and welcome to Angus at Work. Where's the beef industry going? That's a question we don't like to answer, right? The closest thing we can get to reading the future is analyzing trends and pairing that with historical data. Today, Lance Zimmerman, Senior Beef and Cattle Analyst with Robo AgriFinance, shares insights with today's host, Miranda Ryman, from a recently published paper titled, Not So Fast, That Herd Rebuild Will Take Time. This episode is brought to you by Lollamond Animal Nutrition. So, let's dig in. Thanks for joining us, Lance. Yes, thank you for the invitation. Why don't you start out by just giving us a little bit of background on what you do there at Rabo in that role? Yeah, uh, it's fun being a, a research analyst for basically an ag lending institution. So, um, you know, you think about the Angus Association and how it has a lot of subsidiaries and a lot of tech tentacles that branch out across all aspects of the beef industry. Uh, and this job does too. Uh, Rabo Bank is one of the largest banks on the globe. Uh, a lot of folks may not know that it's actually based out of the Netherlands, uh, but we have a massive massive presence in North America. And so I'm part of the North American uh, food and agribusiness research team for Rabobank. And I get the opportunity to work with anyone from cow-calf producers on farm and ranches all throughout the United States, to our packer processing friends, to anybody even that's selling finished consumer goods to U.S., Canadian, Mexican consumers. So I cover all aspects of the industry and get the chance to play in data, look at analyst trends, and just create networks and relationships across the industry. That sounds like a fun position to be in and also seems like a good view to take on this topic of herd rebuilding. Yes. That's kind of the, I would say going into this year, that's been the thing that both leaves producers, depending on where you sit in the chain, producers very optimistic on prices or maybe a little bit pessimistic on on where they're going to get cattle to fill their pens. So. Yes, absolutely. I mean, whether you're a cow-calf producer looking ahead to hopefully the next expansion, whether you're one of these investors in one of the new packing plant projects going on around the country, or whether you're a consumer foods group trying to figure out how you're going to supply your meat case or put an item on the menu uh, in a supply environment that's going to be declining. Everybody's focused on the cow herd contraction we just went through, as well as, okay, how quickly can we rebuild the herd from what we've declined from recently? Sure. And we've had a lot of moisture here lately, at least in my part of the world. And I know I've seen that across the West and heard some weather forecasts here recently that were long-term outlooks that were positive. So we are certain we are going to start rebuilding, but give me a little bit of the lay of the land. When will that start happening? When can we see the results of that rebuilding? Exactly. Well, I think it's good to have a level set and understand, okay, where are we today? And obviously the cattle inventory report that came out giving us that uh, boundary of where's the January one cow herd kind of serves as an excellent foundation to think about where can we go from here. And obviously let's focus on the beef cow number. We came in at 28.9 million head, uh, basically with all intents and purposes, revisiting the 2014 lows, which were the lowest cow herd numbers we'd seen since 1962. Um, As we navigate through that, uh, unfortunately, even though we've had a lot of precipitation this winter through the northern plains, uh, we haven't gotten that moisture drawn all the way down to Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. We had record high liquidation this past year. We've had an ample number of heifers getting shipped off to feed yards instead of staying home at farm and ranches. And as a result, we simply 
need the, the moisture trends to turn their tide. We need to see more moisture through the southern plains. And obviously with cattle producers where they are today, with calf prices where they're at, basically getting around 1000 maybe $1,100 a head for calf values, that's probably not enough to cover the feed bill. With feed supplies as tight as they are, pasture inventories as low as they are. Uh, and so we need to see the calf market rebound and stay at elevated levels. We need to see moisture conditions, not just come and replenish what we lost, but have some staying power so that when we look across those prairies, they're healthy, green, and vibrant again. When we look at our hay stocks, we have an ample supply to get us through a winter and then a little margin on the sides. And that's gonna take a couple years. And that's really one of the aspects that the paper focuses on. Let's turn the tide on the heifer numbers. Let's turn the tide on the cowherd slaughter that we've seen over the last several years. Let's get the green grass replenished, and then we can start talking about a healthy, robust expansion again. But we're probably still two years away before we can see that happen. So that's a good point when you mention, I, I tend to think, oh gosh, calf prices are up. This is really good. But that economic incentive you say isn't quite there yet. Are you predicting that it will be? Absolutely. I think one of the things that I'm struggling with, we know that the calf price has to come up. We've seen a great recovery in fed cattle prices. Uh, one of the things economists like to talk about that may be a somewhat new term for your listeners is retracement levels. And all that is is a fancy way of saying, based on the downtrend that we just went through in prices from the previous price highs in 14 to the bottom during the pandemic, how much of that loss have we already recovered? On the fed cattle side, we've recovered about 82% of that decline in price that we went through. But when you look at feeder cattle and calf prices, they've only recovered about 55% of that full decline. And a lot of that's because of the feed bill. We're not just looking at high pasture costs and high hay prices. We're also looking at incredibly high corn prices. And so in order to get that bump to calf prices, we need a good pass-through mechanism. We need feed prices to come down so feed yards can bid more aggressively for those calves. And let alone that, we need to have a consumer that we can pass higher beef prices on to because even if demand holds steady, the declining supply environment alone will mean that beef prices have to go up. And there's some headwinds we have to work through there. Inflationary pressures, chipping away at income, just a lot of expenses getting passed on to consumers in an environment where we have very ample pork and poultry supplies. And so we got to keep that in mind going forward. Take control of your silage quality with Magneva Platinum Forage Inoculant. This new product by Lollamond Animal Nutrition not only gives you fast-acting bacteria for improved feed-out stability, so you can open your silo in just 15 days, it also slows spoilage for long-lasting protection, so it keeps your silage staying fresh and delicious for your cattle. To learn more, visit magneva.com slash North America. I just had a conversation here today that somebody said, I'm a little bit worried about the high prices and what will consumers stand and, and all of that. Do you guys have a level that you think is, how high is too high? No, that is a great question. And I honestly, just like going through the pandemic, I don't think we know yet. Um, the good news is retail beef prices are down from their all-time highs. We set that in October of 2021, around 750 a pound retail across all commodity classes of beef. Um, we're down about 715 a pound right now. So we have some upside where we can retest those all-time highs. But honestly, as we navigate from where we were last year to where the cycle lows in beef supplies are, we're probably going to take 10% out of the beef supply, about five pounds a person. 
if that's the case, uh, in an environment where may we decline beef demand ever so slightly because of some of these pressures we talked about, but still maintain the long-term uptrend, it would suggest we need retail prices around $8.50, maybe even $9 a pound. So that's where it needs to be. Now we got to ask ourselves, will the consumer pay that? And when you think about total beef, pork, and poultry supplies, we're in a totally different environment than the last expansion. Uh, back then, we were consuming 180 pounds of beef, pork, and poultry. It was the tightest supply of those three proteins in the U.S. since 1990. Today, we're at 210 pounds of beef, pork, and poultry. And pork numbers look like they're going to stay pretty steady over the next several years. Broiler numbers can probably continue to ratchet just a little higher. Beef's going to decline about five pounds. So with that in the back of our heads, we're probably going to stay very well supported with protein supplies around 220 pounds, or sorry, 200 pounds, which is 20 pounds higher than where we were at the beginning of the last cycle. Yeah, it's a good point that you can go back and look at history, but there's never a time that fits exactly perfect with what you're going through now. Miranda, I always joke that if you can't forecast accurately, forecast often. (laughs) (laughs) And we've had to do that a lot over the last several years. We'll probably continue to do that. But we try to have as sharp of a pencil as we can. And really painting these long-term trends is somewhat easier than just trying to time the market tomorrow or next month or at the end of the year during fall weaning. Um, The long-run trends do tend to play out, generally speaking, within the trend of expectations. Sometimes the absolute highs and absolute lows need rewritten as we go. Um, But I do think we're in a a unique period where we got just a lot of stressors that we have to work through right now. So on this podcast, we like to give producers kind of a practical nugget that they can take back, knowing that they need to evaluate their own pasture-forage situation and their own operations there. But if you were looking at it from a pure economic standpoint, when when would be the best time to be be expanding your herd? Absolutely. I've had that question a lot over the last several weeks of releasing this paper. And the one thing I tell cow-calf producers is uh, just remember, you're likely married to your spouse. You don't want to be married to some cows you don't like. And there's nothing to say about cows that we don't love except for cows that don't make money. Then even as much as we love them, sometimes we got to let them go. And that heartbreak is real. So what I've been telling guys is let's be slow, let's be calculated, and let's be really good businessmen. Now's the time to really sharpen your pencil, calculate your break even, know what your cost of production are, and know where you can enter into the cow business and do so profitably. And for a lot of producers, what it's gonna mean going forward is especially if you're comfortable with the genetic base that you built up, start retaining those heifers. And what's great is, even if you sell the steer mates in this point in the cycle, and you run those heifers through the winter and all of a sudden feed resources start getting tight, you can still sell them as feeder heifers, you know, late winter, early spring and, and catch that uptrend in the cattle market into that period. If you go ahead and you breed some and by the time you get done with breeding, pasture inventories look a little tight, not as much green grass as you thought, make a deep cut into them, keep the bare minimum or decide to keep them and get rid of the, the poorest performing cows in your herd. But be slow. Don't jump in with both feet, walk before you can run, be very calculated and just put one foot in front of the other. So I hear be slow and also be flexible a little bit in that way. Absolutely. Great recap. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Otherwise, I'm going to 
ask you to tell me where people can find this paper. <laughs> no, uh, the one thing I would say is, even though there's some short-term headwinds, there's also a lot of great opportunity. Um, we have some challenges, um, but one of the great things about our industry, when you look at any time over the last 50 plus years where we face challenges, one of the coolest things we did, and one of the great things Angus producers understand is that we leaned hard on the vertically coordinated supply chain. We worked together segment across segment, whether it's like the certified Angus beef brand, who, which totally embodies that, or the beef checkoff, or the beef quality assurance program, or the beef quality audit. Um, we're going through a different period, and we're talking a lot about sustainability and a lot of other things like generational transfer and who owns the land and things of that nature. I think we're gonna see a new wave of vertically coordinated production. Maybe some of the current systems just evolve. Maybe we have some new systems that aren't even on the books yet. But I think that's going to be the key to rebuilding this cow herd. And I think that the prior highs at 32 million, we can hit them again. Uh, and we can do it in a very prosperous way. But I think the creative will be rewarded. I like that's a good note to end on. We always say that the cattle business is a people business. So tell me something good that's happened, either personally or professionally. Give me some good news. Yeah, you know, the great thing I love about this business, even among the, the trials and, and challenges that come up, is at the end of the day, it's a people business. And it's in a, a business where we get to make a livelihood, one, caring for animals, and two, providing food for people. And even though I'm a market economist, even though I'm forced to, to calculate the numbers and crunch the trends, the greatest thing about this industry is we can have conversations like this. We can have feedback back and forth. You mentioned the research paper. Uh, that's out on our Rabo Research Food and Ag Business website. They can Google that. They can scroll, they'll find the paper. And what's great is if they like it, give me a call. Let's talk about it. If they don't like something, read it, call me up. Let's talk about it. And we'll come together with some common solutions. So I heard your something good was that you got to be interviewed on this podcast today. Absolutely. <laughs> with great people. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Listeners, to get more information to help make Angus work for you, check out the Angus Beef Bulletin and the digital Angus Beef Bulletin Extra publications. You'll find links to subscribe to both of those in our show notes. We'll also link the paper Lance was referring to in the show notes. And we'd sure appreciate it if you would rate this podcast or leave a review to tell us what you learned or what was helpful and share this episode with any other profit-minded cattlemen. And we are grateful to today's episode sponsor, Lalamond Animal Nutrition. Thanks for listening. This has been Angus at Work.